Welcome to Tadween Talks, a series on status featuring conversations with the authors and editors of Tadween Publications. Beyond the text themselves, Tadween Talks will also be a space to discuss broader trends in publishing on the Middle East, as well as to investigate the role of publishing in furthering our goal of critical knowledge production here at the Arab Studies Institute. My name is Jonathan Adler, and I'm the managing editor here at Tadween Publishing. My guest today is Adel Iskander, an assistant professor of global communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver and a co-editor at Jadalia. He's written widely on media politics in the Arab world and is also the co-editor of and a contributor to Mediating the Arab Uprisings, one of Tadween's first publications that was released back in 2013. Adel, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So I'm very excited um, to revisit mediating the Arab uprisings with you, um, you know, particularly since it's a book that seems to have remained relevant and timely throughout these past six years. Um, to begin with, I was hoping you could give our audience just sort of a brief introduction to the book, uh, to some of the main topics that the essays within it address and the arguments that they make, um, and also you know, taken as a whole what uh, this edited volume seeks to achieve. Uh, yes, of course. I'm happy to do so. Uh, well, basically, I think it's important to figure out what the impetus was behind this book. The book itself uh, is very much in dialogue with the circumstances that unfolded uh, across many part, many countries in, in the Arab uh, Middle East and North Africa and, uh, and the Arabian Peninsula uh, in 2010 all the way through to 2013. Um, often called in the mainstream media the Arab Spring, and you know we begin to kind of think about ways of deconstructing that type of language. But uh, but in a fundamental way, there was uh, a fairly wide-ranging um, uh, social dis- dissatisfaction about the both the economic and and the political circumstances across the region, and it uh, it turned into uh, massive uprisings. Uh, from starting in Tunisia and then to Egypt and from there to Syria and um, uh, and Yemen and Bahrain and and so we be, and Libya and we began to see this uh, so-called domino effect unfold. Uh, unfortunately, um, because it, everything was so fleeting and because of the nature of media coverage about uh, about the the Middle East at large, there's a tendency to become sort of fetishistically obsessed with uh, with um, with current events. And so there was a very limited um, sort of historicization of what was happening in uh, the region up until that particular juncture in time. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the media were themselves the instrument with which we were trying to comprehend uh, what was happening in, in the streets and in the hallways of power uh, across the region. So this was an, an opportunity for us to sort of take a step back and say, we need to think about the role that the media, is, the media are playing uh, in both relaying the message about the uprisings uh, in uh, entrenching authoritarianism, uh, in um, driving home some of the more problematic kind of orientalist tropes about the region. So we were trying to think about where the media sits vis-a-vis all of these uh, unfoldings uh, in a way that gave the reader an opportunity to access arguments and and perspectives that aren't typically uh, discussed uh, and deliberated about uh, in uh, in their day-to-day kind of exposure about the Middle East. So the discussion about this book began, you know, essentially the moment that uh, the opening salvo uh, of the toppling of Ben Ali uh, in Tunisia happened in uh, in late 2010. Uh, but really, the whole book began to to materialize as we saw incredible contributions coming into uh, Jadalia that uh, that really began you know, made a uh, significant headway in, in the area of deconstructing media narratives. Um, so the book itself is a multi-chapter book uh, with contributions from about 17 or 18 people uh, from vast, vastly different backgrounds, areas of knowledge, uh, uh, many of them academic, others are journalists. Uh, but all of whom are invested in in helping us rearticulate uh, what the role of media in in politics uh, and economics in the region might be, and then also th- thinking 
uh, in a very practical way about uh, the Western kind of optics about how the Middle East is constructed and contemplated and negotiated and contested. So the book itself uh, starts off with a discussion about how the how uprisings such as the ones that unfolded in, in the Middle East uh, can be mediated uh, and then slowly begins to look at specific case studies, whether it's looking at Syria and, and you know, the, the protest movement turned revolution, uh, turned insurgency, turned civil war, uh, and, and all the different dynamics about how, you know, what story to tell and on whose behalf and, and the, um, the way in which uh, the politics, the geopolitics and geostrategies of, of global power uh, can sometimes translate into uh, complicated narratives on the ground. So there's a real contestation around Syria in this book. Um, there's also a, a sort of a discussion about um, the, the, the cult of expertise, you know, the role of people like the late, uh, um, Ajami, for instance, uh, who was part and parcel of, uh, of the sort of consultative relationship to power in the U.S. and, and helped explain, uh, and justify America's, uh, you know, military misadventures in the region and how that, uh, has permeated some of the mainstream coverage, uh, in the New York Times and, and other major publications. And we also begin to delve into the role that Al Jazeera, uh, played in, uh, in both, um, trying to speak on behalf of the, the protest movements in the region, but the way in which that too became, uh, so politicized so as to, uh, in essence, uh, render the news organization uh, favorable in the eyes of some and uh, and and unfavorable in the eyes of others uh, in the region. So we begin to think about how Al Jazeera went from being very revolutionary to being uh, sort of an evolution of, of uh, a new kind of monopolistic uh, approach to media coverage in, in the region and how that translates to revolutionary uh, programming. We also think, and as you might very well know, and many of our, our listeners might know, uh, the Egyptian uh, component of these Arab uprisings, the Egyptian Revolution of January 25th, uh, was often art, you know, described in the mainstream media as the Facebook revolution. And so we begin to deconstruct that and think about, you know, yes, there's a, there's a role, uh, to be played, uh, that were, that was played by um, by the social media instruments and social networking and and various kind of uh, innovations, uh, but it's uh, but we move beyond that sort of technological determinism uh, to think more practically about you know people's lives vis-a-vis protest. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff. I don't want to give it all away, but basically I've only just described about five or six of uh, what ended up being about. 16 chapters and everything from, um, you know, uh, memorializations of Anthony Shadid who lost his life in, in Syria, but, uh, but really helped articulate a new way of doing journalism in the region, uh, how Iraq is covered, how Palestine, uh, produces, um, you know, a certain language for the New York Times, uh, the coverage of Iran. I mean, even areas where there were, there were limited uprisings, but are still part of the basic tropes of how to represent the Middle East. All of those were being discussed. Uh, the pioneer bloggers in the, uh, in the Gulf during that time. Uh, the role of virtuality, uh, and, and mainstream media, satellite television, uh, sexism, uh, and, uh, Islamophobia. So there are lots of different themes covered in this book by, uh, by writers and authors who were looking for a way to unsettle what seemed to be a very, uh, you know, stagnant discussion about the role that media plays. Um, so that's, that's essentially the, the premise for the book. And all of this happened, you know, the, the publication, um, as you, as you mentioned, uh, is one of the earliest for Tadween. So this came through, uh, uh, in 2013, which is, um, basically two years into these uprisings. Now in 2019, late 2019, we could see that the protest movements continue, uh, to, to, to unfold in various places just in the past couple of weeks. And, and in fact, in fact, the last 24 hours, we have huge protest movements in, in Lebanon making very similar demands, but also being co-opted by various media instruments. Uh, similar prote- huge protests in Iraq over the last couple of weeks as well, demanding, uh, you know, an end to corruption and, and more 
representative government, uh, and then of course more protests uh, in Egypt. So the the discussion around the Arab uprisings hasn't ended. There's a tendency for us to think that you know we're in a quote unquote post revolutionary phase, but uh, but revolutions are 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 sort of um, continuous processes of fundamental structural change. And that's exactly why they ebb and flow in, in intriguing ways. So this is our uh, way of, of, um, of opening up the discussion to include uh, a, a wider debate about the role that media play both in the Middle East and in North America and Western Europe uh, to either enhance or undermine uh, the way we understand these uh, these social movements. Great, thank you. Um, as you mentioned, you know it seems like one of the the central themes that runs throughout the book uh, is the need that you recognized uh, and your co-authors recognized back, um, you know, at least as early as 2011, maybe earlier, uh, the need to address and rectify some of the common misunderstandings about the role uh, of the media generally in the Arab world and particularly in the Arab uprisings. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the use of Facebook in the Egyptian revolution. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about one or two other sort of specific misunderstandings that were uh, particularly present in Western media coverage of the uh, Arab uprisings. And, you know, perhaps also thinking, as you mentioned, about the legacy and the ongoing nature of these revolutions now, um, how those misunderstandings uh, you know, have have or haven't changed uh, over the past yeah. six years. Well, I'm glad you're asking that. There, there, are frankly, so many, and it's it can sometimes be very disenchanting and demoralizing to see how some of these uh, tropes and misrepresentations are have become such recycled content. Um, so there's a lot of the same knowledge production. So, for instance, any discussion around. Uh, Iran uh, is often articulated with the dichotomy of uh, of Islamist regime versus sort of uh, liberal opposition detractors, and so that basically um, it uh, it uh, it blots out any sort of nuance or complexity that represents a political or an actual political spectrum. So, for instance. Um, you know, discussing like feminism and, and, and sexism and patriarchy in the Iranian context uh, doesn't really, you know, doesn't really compute unless it's filtered through the lens of like a, an anti-regime, anti-Islamist narrative. And sometimes that's really problematic. And the same goes with the alternative to that in the region. There's a There was a tremendous amount of excitement behind these uprisings with the assumption that what will replace them are Western-style, quote-unquote, liberal democratic institutions. And when that doesn't materialize in a, in a functional way, uh, we end up having uh, a real sort of confusion. So, this, so the book tries to move beyond the, the sort of the mythologizing of, of political opposition and to demonstrate the, the fact that, you know, well, Middle Eastern society is not unlike any society in the world, uh, are, is, is comprised of so many different political constituencies, um, that, that need to be challenged. So, you know, there, another interesting, uh, question is, uh, around, let's say, um, protest movements um, in the Middle East being largely contained to areas and, and countries where uh, the socioeconomic circumstances are dire. And while there is a political economic, a, a very integral political economic dimension to these uh, uprisings, um, the, f the assumption that the, you know, the, the very sort of comparatively wealthy uh, Gulf region is effectively unscathed and untouched, untouched by these uprisings, which is entirely false. Uh, in fact, in a country like Bahrain, Bahrain had one of the more substantial protest movements by unit population uh, in the region, and that was very quickly quashed. And, and the quashing was not just um, um, instrumental and, 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 and institutional, but it was also very much mediated. The fact that there was a media embargo against coverage of Bahrain meant that the story itself could not circulate anywhere. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, assumptions that I think we're, we're slowly kind of working to, um, to sort of disentangle and to ensure that our readers can 
appreciate how incredibly complicated things are. That that, that the, the, I think the key here is for us to to problematize. Our intention was to problematize. You know, so readers who are interested in learning more about the region can feel like they're gratified by what they're getting, but but also they should be leaving with more questions than answers. And we think that is an advantageous outcome. Um, another another um, problematic that's that's quite frequently sort of you know uh, recycled is um, uh, is is the view on Palestine. Um, the the trope of like. Um, Palestinian, um, you know, um, f- quote unquote, freedom fighter slash terrorist, and and how that relates to the way in which Palestinian-Israeli, you know, conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is is conceived, is 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 a translatable sort of trope that is passed on to so many different kind of political conflicts in the region. So the op- that that those set of optics are then transplanted onto like the Syrian context, the Iraqi context and so many others uh, and in in effect translate into like almost like a military a military fetish or a fetish for like state uh, you know state uh, power exhibited in the form of militarization. So there is um, there's a real sort of complicated way of thinking about how the 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 grammar of how we describe protest movements is is recycled between regions uh, in in the Arab world and, and North Africa um, so so yeah so there there are a lot of these different things and as as readers parse through or begin to sort of wade through the the book they'll they'll notice that they're a lot of instances where uh, the mainstream media, not just in, in North America and Western Europe, but also in the Middle East, are taken to task for their failure to either present information in a nuanced way or to lazily accept preconceived ideas uh, that are, you know, that appeal to the lowest common denominator and render the situations in the region a lot less. Um, compelling, which also sometimes, um, you know, creates like a um, like a hero versus nemesis type of arrangement, which is sometimes a lot more complicated. So, so those are the type, some of the things that that we discuss. But as you can imagine, um, our attempt to be um, comprehensive, which is impossible, um, <laughs> um, were basically meant that we had to cover as much territory as we possibly could given given the time uh, that we had to produce the book so I think there are at least eight or nine different countries that are highlighted uh, in in the book in, in one way or another uh, but we understand that even then um, our our blind spots are, are still quite significant which is the reason why this book is is really an organic project it's it's the beginning of a conversation rather than the the end of one so We've constantly thought about, you know, if this book were to be reissued, what would it look like? What other contributions might exist, and uh, and what what could we add to it, or what areas uh, are are missing? And and there there's more outside of the book than there is inside it. But it's the intention is to, as I said, initiate a conversation, trigger intrigue, and 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 really begin to unpack the structural problematics of how media institutions. Uh, operate and function, uh, and and how we can begin to challenge those not just um, you know in the material sense, but thinking about it in a discursive sense. That it really is a lot about language and optics and and uh, imagery and visual you know choices and which photographs photographs end up you know uh, being projected and and uh, and circulated around the world and at, at the expense of what other stories and narratives. Great. One thing that, you know, I wanted to, to ask you about um, sort of on this theme of, of the linguistics or the, or the discursive aspects uh, of the Arab uprisings um, was, you know, what you termed in the book a frontier of, of contestation, the way media has become, you know, a frontier of contestation, not only for domestic, but also regional inter- and international actors. Um, that rep- represents, you know, the media represents in this way another, quote, terrain of warfare between competing visions for the Arab world. 
You know, and this was something, as you noted in the book, um, that didn't require hindsight and was clear very early on, especially uh, in Libya and Syria and Yemen, um, you know, that, that the, uh, quote, straightforward people versus power dynamic subsided uh, and domestic revolutions were quickly internationalized, um, both on the ground, but in the media. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? And I know, I know some of your research um, you know, has involved looking at Al Jazeera as a particular case study. Yes. No, absolutely. And I think I think you're 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 nailing this really critical point because I think what we often uh, forget is that right now we're living in the day and age of of transnational media institutions, and uh, and what exists, you know, a, a single kind of news agency that's based in London or Doha or Beijing or Washington D.C. Uh, the you know, the content is being generated around the world and being circulated and disseminated to other locales. And, and the Middle East has been, has gone from having, uh, predominantly sort of national broadcasting entities to having sort of trans, a real sort of transnational media with Al Jazeera being an example and La Arabia, but every country has in, in, in the, uh, in the Arab world, uh, and, and the Middle East and North Africa in general has invested in, uh, in broadcasting and broadcast news specifically because um, it allows them to have a horse in this sort of geopolitical battle over over ideas uh, and ways of you know um, of implementing either ideological perspectives or uh, or creating sort of reach outside of their own national borders. So Al Jazeera was perhaps the first example of a 24-hour all-news uh, sort of broadcaster that was accessible across the region over a satellite. Uh, but today we have, you know, similar instruments uh, with varying, you know, varying sort of uh, capacities and, uh, and, uh, and budgets. But nevertheless, uh, the discussion about the, the regionalization of every single conflict is part and parcel of the way these media institutions eat and breathe. Like that is basically their, their bread and butter now. Uh, so what happens in the Sudan, depending on the way in which it's covered by Al Jazeera or Al Arabiya or Al Mayadeen or Al Nahal or some of the other sort of smaller uh, national broadcasters in the region um, is a way of, of gleaning uh, how political powers are either invested or disinvested. Uh, in those particular sort of political situations and circumstances, um, and I think we we've missed out we've missed out on the opportunity to to really think about the way um, power is reinforced in that sort of system because. Uh, we are operating, or we have operated, especially during the period of incredible kind of utopian enthusiasm in 2011, 2012, where we thought, you know, the, the people power over, uh, you know, the, the people's power over, over powerful institutions and, and authoritarian states. Uh, we sort of became so incredibly enthused uh, by the media coverage that we forgot that these media institutions are themselves um, uh, invested in a structural kind of vision, competing structural visions for what the Middle East should look like. Um, so very quickly we began to see that Al Jazeera was invested in a particular kind of social movement, um, a sort of semi-moderate, you know, Islamist interpretation of, of governance with representative electoral politics. Um, and then that very quickly kind of shifted people or pub the public's and audience's perception of that network. And then very quickly other networks began to fall into place to, to, to fill a void and to also present a competing vision of that. Uh, today, the the two or two or three primary sort of media producers, uh, national media producers in in the region are Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and to lesser extent uh, Lebanon uh, and and Egypt, being sort of a, a you know a media lackey of, of of the Saudis, and so that landscape really sort of grew out of uh, that particular moment and these competing visions 
have overlapped in some circumstances, such as, you know, in the war in Yemen up until about two years ago, until the embargo on Qatar, uh, and in other places in, in Libya, and to a lesser extent in Syria, until again three or two or three years ago. So we begin to see how various news and media organizations are really, even though they appear to be at this at their at the you know at the surface, um, they appear to be really sort of freewheeling and open and uh, and are operating on basic sort of journalistic principles entrenched in you know accuracy and uh, and uh, you know I'm not going to say objectivity, but at least sort of like a fair like fairness and and uh, and a commitment to, to social justice, um, we realize that it's really not that innocent. And, and to the contrary, that uh, the gatekeeping role and the agenda setting role of, of the media, it, those roles are, are still very much a part of the way uh, they operate today, irrespective of, of where they're situated and which borders they're crossing. Uh, they're still beholden to specific um, you know powers that dictate um, how a story is going to be covered um, how a particular protest movement is going to be articulated um, who the good guys are versus the bad guys and uh, and you know even in in some cases in the name of, of liberal progressive politics that you know liberal progressive politics are deployed by the same news organizations in one place and in another they are they're undermined depending on political, sort of outcomes. So this is the kind of, you know, landscape that we're currently working with, where the idea that the state is withering away and sort of disintegrating and, and there's the rise of like independent media. I think that's all, it's fairly clear that this is, uh, this is a, a, a rather, you know, juvenile interpretation, uh, the, you know, circa 2010 and 2011, even, even since the late 1990s, there was the assumption that the states were basically falling apart and, uh, and these new media organizations driven by enterprising, creative, you know, young people who want who have a different vision for the region uh, was, uh, was clearly a little bit too innocent. That doesn't take away from the, the, the capacities and the skills and the, and the well-meaningness of a lot of the, the work that was done. Uh, but, uh, but in very unfortunate terms, uh, the, the uh, political economic structure and the system of ownership of media uh, has translated into specific, you know, outcomes that are that have been largely unfavorable for, I would say, virtually all of the social movements involved. You know, and on this theme, you know, continue with this theme of journalistic uh, and you know even epistemic credibility. Um, you know, I was, I was hoping one other thing we might discuss um, a bit about. Um, is the phenomenon of fake news, um, you know, and fake news, yeah. uh, and 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 how it interacts with social media, particularly in the Arab world. Um, you know, this was present, at, as you note in the book, uh, back in mm -hmm. 2013. But it's a phenomenon that has seemed to grow exponentially around the world yes. uh, in the years since. Um, so, can can you talk a little bit about you know the way in which social media can be this sort of double-edged sword, um, yes. where on one hand um, as you note in the book, the international media relies very heavily on social activists and relied, you know, during the revolutions mm -hmm. um, on social activists on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, for their sort of on the ground reporting and information. Um, but that, as we've seen uh, in the years since, uh, even more so that these platforms are also used uh, to proliferate intentionally false information, often, you know, from state actors themselves. Yes. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, when we were working on this book, it, it, we became, we were acutely aware of, of that concern, the concern about sort of authentication and verification and, and the extent to which real stories are being narrated and the importance of on the ground sort of reporting and connections to local voices. Um, and, and I think a lot of the other sort of major broadcasters were appeared to be deeply committed to what they, I mean, what Al Jazeera would sometimes call like, you know, native reporting or native journalism or something along those lines. Um, and that, you know, often gave off the impression that, uh, that everything that came from the ground was 
in a way more either more authentic or more true to uh, the visions of those who are uh, committed to the social uprisings. And I think, you know, as you as you said, there is there's really kind of an, an epistemic crisis when it comes to to news coverage. And I don't think that this is a new thing, but I I feel as though in the age of social media, there's uh, there's a, a, an almost like a an incredible presentist and futurist obsession that uh, that scooping and getting the story is much more important than ensuring that the realities are unfolding in the manner in which they're narrated. Um, so, you know, scare, scare stories or, or sort of clickbait, uh, is, uh, are the defining features of, of how we, uh, how we access news and, and circulate it nowadays. Um, and you know, the, Elections in 2016 in in the United States were, um, in a way, a, a part and parcel of of that uh, that sort of that last nail in the coffin, if you will, where you have the president, you know, newly elected President Trump, uh, essentially, you know, going in a, on a full frontal attack against the media and uh, and peddling absolute fabrications at, at the expense of, of, of news. And, uh, and even though this has always been the case in one way or another, but, uh, but I think the level of, or the, the extent to which it, that, you know, that positionality is so audacious now, uh, and is operating with such impunity that, uh, effectively it, it raises the question of what we, you know, whether or not there's anything that is potentially verifiable. And so, um, taking the, their cue from uh, from the United States, many of the regimes in the region, as well as the protesters and and the various social movements, um, have had to think creatively about ways in which their stories, their their political projects, are represented and understood and interpreted. Uh, and that's come with a tremendous amount of fictional creativity, and that fictionalization on one level might be celebrated because you know it's uh, it demonstrates uh, uh, the ability to uh, to kind of spin a story if you will or something along those lines but uh, but the other end you know the other end of that spectrum is that some of the stories are are outright fabrications and and it's 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 sad because uh, there are lots of really genuine um, and important um, stories and, and experiences that end up being either blotted or uh, or effectively effaced and erased by these quote unquote like fabricated sort of fake news stories. So um, as soon as you know, I'll give you an example. Like um, uh, I forget the name off the top of my head. What was her name? Uh, uh, Gay girl in Damascus, I think was okay. the the name of. I think it was called Gay girl in Damascus. Uh, and it was uh, basically a, a you know an anonymous blogger who was using like a, a pseudonym to post stories uh, out of Damascus during the height of uh, of the protest movement before you know in the early days of of the civil war and uh, basically drove home a message that here was this young liberal uh, western educated uh, flu- English you know fluent in English. Um, young woman who is writing out of Damascus and and uh, trying to appeal for the people's support, uh, the international community's uh, support of the uprising against Bashar al-Assad and the regime. And it was, I mean, she, she, I say she with with like quotation marks, but that story circulated very very widely and 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 had tremendous traction. It was almost an obsession as to like who she is and where she was based and what she was doing, and uh, and so much was hinged on her identity and what she was saying, until lo and behold, it is discovered that uh, this was all you know material that was posted from an IP address out of. You know Scotland, and oh it turns gosh. out that this was a, a, a middle-aged white guy in Edinburgh who was posing as the gay girl in Damascus, and and there there were plenty of you know LGBTQ you know women in Damascus that would have narrated these stories, but instead the the fabrication of that story has effectively uh, hurt the 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 perception of. Uh, of authenticity from any story that that subsequently unfolds, 
Um, and, and this is just one of hundreds, if not thousands of examples across the region where, um, the, the inaccuracy of stories or the quote unquote fakeness of stories or the sort of fictionalization of stories, uh, has hurt the, the credibility, not just of the senders, but of all, you know, the entire movements. And it, there's a spillover effect that impacts those who've never in any way uh, we're never in any way responsible for, for these fabrications. And it's reproduced, uh, uh, an incredible level of, of public cynicism and audience cynicism around, uh, news coming from the region. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also, uh, it, sort of a, a, like a, a downward spiral because as soon as you begin to compete in the arena of fabricated news, and staged uh, and and staged uh, politics, uh, you really are opening yourself up to uh, to you know um, non discerning uh, interpretations of of reality, uh, a, a sort of a shift in 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 how and whether or not something can be truly expressed and, and articulated. And right now, I think there is uh, a tremendous amount of fatigue. Uh, from representations of either violence and and uh, and, uh, and there, there's a lot there's a lot of fatigue in general from stories about and from the Middle East and there's sto- and there's also that fatigue within the Middle East uh, which stories to believe who is right or wrong there's a lot of sort of questioning of motives of intentions of objectives who's behind what take for instance the protest movement in Lebanon right now uh, it seems like an extremely organic um, you know, seemingly leaderless uh, protest movement against corruption, uh, government corruption, uh, and and is targeting virtually all of the the major political forces in the country. But within a span of 24 hours, the attempt to sort of co-opt uh, that message by the various political elites in the country and the leadership in the country is 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 happening at such an, a remarkable pace and a dizzying pace, so as to uh, effectively undermine uh any inter any sort of authentic interpretation of of what those you know qualms might have been um so yeah i mean not to sound cynical about it but i think audiences themselves have become quite cynical about what is true and what isn't and who they should support um but it's also part of the incredible success of of the regimes as well the regimes have have been able to demonstrate staying power by um, by effectively you know drawing attention to and, and and zooming in on the blemishes of the various kind of opposition social movements um, and uh, and and in some cases create fabricated stories about the fabrication of the stories produced mm-hmm. by uh, by protest movements so so it's layers and layers of of uh, of fictional storytelling uh, that are very very after a while become extremely difficult to parse out. And uh, even though there's, you know, there's a growing industry of of news verification uh, in journalism, but you know, once the story is out, it's really difficult to backtrack on it. And I'll give you a great example. Like anytime, you know, people think of Richard Gere, there's a story that is unforgettable about about him. That you know, whether it's an urban legend or a myth or a real, doesn't really matter. It's it's uh, huh. it's still there. So so it's that's that's essentially the the problem that. I think we're we're faced with is the 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 incredible sort of uh, the avalanche, if you will, of uh, of um, of news that is impossible, nearly impossible uh, to verify in the news cycle, uh, while continuing to scoop one you know one story after the next, uh, and before you know it, there's the first drafts of history are produced irrespective of. Uh, whether or not they are uh, they're actually truthful. So, so this book is is really an attempt to interrupt this sort of mouse in the wheel ap- approach to thinking about media and and sort of like stop, contemplate, think about what this means, and use that as an impetus to uh, to to help us analyze media production moving forward. Mm-hmm. And and I think skepticism is an is an important tool and instrument to have. Uh, at our disposal when approaching media irrespective of where it's coming from. And I think um, that's a, a lesson, I think, a, t- a good take-home lesson for anyone who is interested in the subject matter. Absolutely. Now, stepping back slightly, I also want to 
get your your perspective in particular as a scholar of media studies uh, um, on the importance of this book uh, situated within the broader literature of writing about media and politics in the Arab world. Um, so, you know, thinking about its main contributions and interventions um, in the literature when it was published and, and perhaps how um, this literature has changed uh, in the year since, changed, you know, for the better, or for the worst, or, or developed in any sense. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad you're asking that question. I mean, it's for, it's in a way forcing me to, to situate it within the larger canon. Um, I think the book itself is very clearly a, a timely production in the sense that it was responding to uh, an impulse and and a, des- a and a desire and a need to interrupt uh, this sort of news cycle. So while the contributions themselves are very thoughtful and very learned, and, and are quite sophisticated uh, in their own right, but they were also meant to be quite accessible and uh, and to really make this a, a more sort of um, you know open ended conversation that involves uh, so many different stakeholders, uh, which is different from a lot of the literature, the academic literature on media in the Middle East at large. Um, uh, it 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 tends to be uh, more sort of focused on either case studies or is driven by a, a curiosity about um, political communication in a, in a specific site. And if it were to be transnational, uh, it's often very um, uh, sort of industry driven or, uh, or it's focused on specific instruments um, such as particular networks or, uh, you know, specific initiatives, media initiatives. Um, so this is a, a, a little bit of a peculiar volume in a sense because it feels like a, a journalistic critique of journalism uh, produced by academics and uh, and uh, you know and activists. Uh, so so it it is it's nestled in a in a very sort of unusual um, sort of spot between uh, these overlapping spaces. Uh, the it, I think it contributes quite positively to the literature that precedes it, and in a way, it perhaps inspires more um, more sort of contemplative work that is uh, that is transnational uh, on the region. So since then, I think we've seen a lot of volumes that are uh, that are that have they're writing in the same spirit or are are produced in the same spirit, uh, but are perhaps uh, more focused on particular phenomenon that are mentioned here. So uh, a lot of these, the points that we mentioned are extrapolated and explored in, in other books since then. Uh, but, uh, but of course in greater detail, but, uh, but they don't, they're not necessarily um, um, so, so cross cutting or so holistic. So I think the, and I think that's, that really was the intention behind the book is to, uh, is to throw a rock in these stagnant waters and, and inspire, uh, future writings on this issue. And I know that it's been cited quite extensively f- for that reason, uh, particularly, uh, because it, it opens up new conversations. Uh, but I think the literature since then has been quite thoughtful, uh, to be frank. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I think we're 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 at the point now where I think there's a, a genuine interest for similar types of of cross cutting analyses that go beyond uh, the the sort of the microscopic analysis of specific case studies or uh, or circumstances to really think in a holistic way about uh, the relationships between different spaces and places and institutions and. And political powers and 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 international geo strategy uh, and things of that sort. There's there's a tendency also for um, media analyses to to be very either presentist or futurist, as I mentioned earlier. And I think this book is, if there's anything, it's a call for 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 us to uh, to t- take a step back and and really contemplate where we came from uh, and and really do media history as as a as a as a form of analysis. Uh, rather than just constantly chasing the next innovation or the next big story, um, so yeah. But I think I think there's there's been a lot produced uh, since then. But that doesn't make this book any any less impactful or relevant. I know that it's still uh, a, 
a, f- a mainstay for many courses uh, on media in, in the Middle East, um, specifically because it addresses in a very accessible way the circumstances as they unfolded circa 2011, 2012. Um, and it feels like many of these story, these articles or chapters are written at that moment. So readers who who begin to, to sort of make their way through these chapters will feel as though they're in a way transported to what uh, an observer or an analyst might be contemplatively thinking about as they watch these incidents unfold and in the media, um, which I think is is a unique work of, of of historical kind of didactic storytelling as well in its own right. Absolutely. Um, no, this has been great. And just on on one sort of last final note, um, I also wanted to uh, ask what other projects. Uh, you've worked on and, and been working on since the publication of Mediating the Arab Uprisings? Um, and also, I mean, what to what extent they build on it or draw from it? Uh, well, I, in all frankness, everything that I've worked on <laughs> since Mediating the Arab Uprisings has been inspired by Mediating the Arab Uprisings. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's impossible to, uh, to, to, uh, to deny the impact that it's had on, on my work personally. But since then, I've decided to focus more specifically on particular media narratives. Uh, the first is uh, the role that political satire and, and humor is used and circulated online by various social movements, particularly in, in Egypt, and how that uh, is is a way of, of creating an, a novel kind of literacy and a new lexicon around, uh, around politics, even when the state dominates the airwaves there there is that sort of like parallel space that is immensely popular and immensely impactful but uh but may not appear to be so because we're not using the same metrics to assess its value um so there's that and and it's basically a lot of like you know uh sardonic humor and really like profane stuff and 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 real sort of genuine um, almost like nihilistic critiques of of the state and power and the military and and religion and and Islamism, everything. It's there's there's a lot of uh, I wouldn't call it like defeatist or escapist or anything of the sort, but I think it's actually really uh, thoughtful and and uh, and and complex and actually quite inspiring. But there's a lot of that happening, not just in Egypt but elsewhere. But my focus is on Egyptian political satire online. Uh, another project is focused on the U.S. government uh, broadcasting to the region because, you know, given all of these transformations, the United States has gone from being uh, a major player in, in defining uh, the, uh, the the agenda for media in the region to being sort of a lesser role, having a lesser role. And that has instigated the launch of like Radio Sawa and Al-Hurra and, and networks like that funded by, you know, by con- congressional money. Uh, and uh, and almost like a revamp of of uh, Voice of America uh, in the in the aftermath of the Iraq War, I should say, like coinciding with the Iraq War in 2003, and uh, and so I'm looking at what that means as far as how America positions itself uh, in terms of its media products uh, in relation to the Arab world. Um, and which is an important part of of this discussion around mediating the Arab uprising, like where is America in the mix? And mm-hmm. America is obviously uh, and the elephant in the room. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, the other project that I've been particularly interested in, and this has certainly grown out of uh, this particular book, is a discussion about uh, knowledge production of um, among academics of how to articulate the Middle East. And, uh, and the work that of, of Arab, Arab Studies Institute and, uh, and more specifically Tedween, your, <laughs> essentially your, your outfit, mm-hmm. as well as, uh, Status, uh, Status, uh, Status Hour and Status Magazine and Audio Journal. Like those are all new and novel instruments that help us like rearticulate and, and reconfigure knowledge production. Uh, scholarly and research-based knowledge production about the Middle East, and I and have an incredible curiosity about what those mean and where they're going. Hmm. So I'm particularly interested in academic podcasting, uh, its impact, its influence, where it's going, who's listening, why are they listening, uh, and uh, and where it might go from here. So 
that's great. That's so this this episode can be can be studied. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll go back and re-listen to our interview and, and try to make sense of all of this. But uh, but yeah, but I think that's this is I think where where the future of of media production is is going, uh, at least as far as the more kind of contemplative uh, products. Uh, and and the way in which they're they're able to to challenge the status quo and uh, and by status quo I don't mean just the political or economic status quo but but the the cultural and social uh, status quo of what is what is to be expected of citizens publics and and, and power um, so yeah I think that's that's all effectively grown out of that you know seemingly small project called Media Arab Uprisings. Thank you. This has been this has been a lot of fun. Thanks again for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, John. All right. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. <laughs>